for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At MidwayUSA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey. And today is Tuesday, July 28, 2020, and today we have a doozy for you. Today, Jared Aridoti comes on the podcast to talk to me about a plethora of things. We talk about baseball, we talk about hunting just off winds, we talk about e-bikes a little bit, and hunting over water holes. So sit back, relax, and enjoy it. All right, all right. Today is a great day because it's podcast day. Today, the fall podcast come out. It's a brand new episode today. Uh, Jared Aridoti comes on the podcast, and this one's a good one. This one, it was kind of going to be a BS session, but it turned into something where it was like really educational, I thought. We talk about a lot of things. Jared, you know, back in the 90s, he was actually drafted to the Atlanta Braves as a catcher. So we talk about playing baseball. Baseball is one of my biggest pastimes. So we talk about that a little bit. But uh, after that, we get into talking about winds and hunting winds and hunting just off winds and uh, hunting over water holes and how e-bikes really made it more effective for him to hunt. And we get into some really cool things. Jared, he actually was born in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, where I'm from. And he moved to Cadillac, and then he moved up to Gladstone up in the UP, and now he lives down in southern Michigan. So he's been all over the state of Michigan. He hunts all over the U.S. I mean, I think this year he's going out to New Mexico on an elk hunt. His son's got a New Mexico antelope hunt, and he whitetail hunts like crazy. So last week we had Justin Hollinsworth on. Well, Justin Hollinsworth and Jared are really good friends. So Justin referred Jared to me, so... He's like, he's a great dude, big baseball guy, and he's a big buck killer. So I'm like, okay, let's have him on. So, And he did not disappoint. But, uh, yeah, that's this week's episode. I, I do have some housekeeping things real quick. Um, the Humanimal Podcast is live right now. It, well, yes, it is live. <laughs> the Humanimal Podcast is live right now. So go over to Humanimal Podcast. It's basically anywhere you can download a podcast. Hit subscribe on that. Listen to some episodes. It's funny. If you can get through an episode and not laugh, 
I'll bet you this is probably not the podcast for you then because you're going to be dying laughing at some of these episodes. So um, it's a little different than what you know I'm doing on the fall podcast, but it's it's still hunting related. There's stories, there's you know behind the scenes that nobody's ever heard, but but us in our little you know close knit group. So it's a really cool podcast. Like I said, subscribe to it if you like it tell a friend. If you don't, then I guess just forget about you even listen to it. So go over there. Like I said, Humanimal Podcast. Subscribe to it. I'm going to say it again. Subscribe to it. Just go subscribe right now. <laughs> um, shameless plugs, I guess. There you go. So enough rambling with me. I'm going to get over to this interview that I did with Jared, and I appreciate your guys' support and everything. <sighs> it's really hot outside, so you know, stay cool. Stay in the shade. So we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, everybody, for listening. All right, welcome back to the Fall Podcast today, and today I've got uh, another fellow Michigander on, and his name is Jared Iridoti. I don't want to get that wrong. You and I were just talking about that, so um, Jared, welcome to the podcast. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. No problem. Hey, I, I you know, I had Justin Hollinsworth on last week, and he was texting me with me this week, and he was like, hey, I've got a good buddy. He's from Michigan. And he's like, I think you guys would hit it off real well because, you know, he said you played played a lot of baseball. And actually, I think he said you were drafted by the Braves back in the 90s. Is that true? Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> seems like yesterday. It seems like forever ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, well uh, Justin knows I'm a big baseball guy. So and then he said he's like, this guy is a straight deer killer. So you got to get him on. So I'm like, okay, baseball and deer, that's what I do. So let's let's get I into that. I appreciate that. Yeah, those are <laughs> two of my favorite topics. <laughs> for sure. So I guess before we get too far, for all those people that might not know you out there, kind of give them a brief bio of you know who you are, where you came from, and, and what you do for a living. Sure. Um, well, I definitely would describe myself as a Michigander. Um, it's hard to say where my hometown is sometimes because I – like I was just telling you, Aaron, my dad was a state policeman and we grew, uh, we moved a few times when I was growing up. I was born in Mount Pleasant and in first grade we moved to Cadillac and in seventh grade we moved to the UP. Um, so I did a little small game and one year of deer hunting in the Cadillac area. Um, but for the most part, um, I cut my teeth hunting the UP. Um, but as uh, as college approached, um, I was getting recruited by different colleges and, and major league scouts, and I ended up going to Western Michigan down in, in here in Southern Michigan. Um, went to grad school in U, at U of M um, in Ann Arbor, so I spent a couple years there. And then uh, graduation brought me back to the west side of the state. I took a job at an ad agency in um, Grand Rapids. It was a little more stability in the, the dot-com era there of the late 90s. And uh, my background is fine art and illustration. I, uh, I studied medical illustration in school. Um, I've always loved biology and anatomy and art and wildlife art for that matter too. Um, I've done that on the side, but I, I trained to be a medical illustrator. And uh, But as I was going, you know, like I mentioned, the late 90s, going through the, the dot-com era, there were a lot of, lot more jobs in, in the realm of web design and, and development. So I, I took a, you could say, a stable day job at an ad agency in Grand Rapids, um, and then I freelanced doing different book illustrations for illustrators or for working for doctors, uh, doing different illustrations um, 
and that kind of evolved after a couple of years. I, it was a little stagnant in, in my role at that agency. I wanted bigger and better things. I, I guess I always saw myself as being self-employed. Um, but then I took a job at Stryker in uh, Kalamazoo, a major medical device company for anyone that doesn't know. And I worked there for about seven years. I was kind of their in-house creative guy. And great, great job. I mean, that was, I'm so thankful for what they allowed me to do. They gave me a lot of flexibility. Um, I was always, um, as I was hunting and fishing on the side, especially hunting, I was always bringing a video camera with me when I was, since I was a kid, taking notes and just learning from, you know, from what I filmed. And Stryker let me start taking, uh, you know, they all supplied my medical illustration knowledge and, and they started letting me go in, into operating rooms and filming surgeries with doctors um, so that I could make DVDs um, that train doctors how to use our products. So I did that for several years. Um, that allowed me to really get into editing and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, so along with web design and development that I was learning at that agency and then at Stryker, that was kind of my role. I was their in-house creative guy. I did web design and development. I did um, video production and and some print projects here and there. Um, but as as time went by, I, I just kind of felt pushed more towards being self-employed, having the flexibility to do what I wanted, when I wanted, and um, more so from a, you know, clientele standpoint, having right. flexibility with clients, having a variety of clients, not just the same same stuff, the same brand all the time. I, I liked a variety of clients. Um, and so it was about 2007, I split off. I initially formed an e-learning company with uh, a former colleague of mine, a striker. And I did that for a couple of years. And we'll just say the, the partnership wasn't working out and we ended up going our separate ways. Um, and that's when I formed Airdoti Studios full-time um, that's been my gig since it's been almost 11 years or going on 12. Um, and, uh, yeah, Airdoti studios is my full-time gig. I work from home. I do web design and development. Um, I've got a team of contractors that work for me and we can do large and small projects. Um, just, you know, kind of a full, full scale agency on a virtual side. Okay. Um, so this COVID thing is kind of fit fine for me as far as my work has gone yeah. but um yeah you know that's my professional side that's pretty um, cool it you know you you bring up the covid thing with that's what we've kind of figured out too with what we're doing with our production and everything as we i mean i'm sitting on my desk here at home you know editing our tv shows and our digital series and everything right from here so it's been pretty cool my commute in the morning is pretty great it's about 37 steps from my you know from my my room to my desk so it's great yeah i, I haven't got to the point of counting steps but i yeah my worst traffic sometimes is battling toys on the floor 100 percent. yeah they're a little bigger than that now but, yeah well good deal so i guess to, to back up a little bit first i gotta because i'm a baseball guy at heart as well so how did that stuff go how did you know the braves getting drafted um and yeah and that was, how'd that go that was a really unique scenario um, because people, number one, that that's cool that I was drafted, but um, I didn't even have a high school baseball team. So when people hear that, they're like, well, what in the world? Um, the way it worked, I was, I was fortunate because, uh, well, several of my 
teammates and older teammates were good ball players, and they started getting some eyes from college scouts. That kept um, that got some scouts coming around, and then then they happened to notice me as as I was playing with the older kids. Um, because I, I mentioned we didn't have a high school baseball team in Gladstone um, because the springs came so late. Um, we would play American Legion, and that typically started first week of May. We'd start practicing in April as it allowed, uh, but it also afforded me to play um, golf and be on the track team in high school, so that helped me get better and improve my speed. Um, what we did was I made an effort, and, and, and thankfully my parents were always supportive. They made an effort to get me to baseball camps in the summer, and so we went to Central Michigan's camp and we went to Western Michigan's camps in the summer. And that's where the coaches first got eyes on me then. Um, in fact, I, I, man, I, hey, I hate tooting my own horn. I just, I played well at those camps as I got into high school and we started scrimmaging, um, playing with the, the best players from around that area and, and that were um, in those camps. I, I did really well in those camps and, and that got them talking to me. So, um, and then the, the word kind of got out with a few of the scouts. I, I know there was a, a guy that was working with the Braves. He was out of northern Wisconsin in the Menominee area. We played a couple tournaments in that area, and he must have got word back to one of the Braves scouts. Um, and Tony Style was his name, the, the scout that ended up drafting me. Um, and I unfortunately can't remember the name of the coach in Menominee that pointed him to me, but... Um, yeah, I had, I think our first game my senior year, I had about six major league scouts there. It was a, like an early May game, and there were snow flurries. It was frigid. <laughs> and these scouts are like, what in the world are we doing playing or yep. watching this game? But, um, yeah, I ended up getting drafted um, as a catcher. I was in the 24th round by the Braves in 93. Okay. So it's really cool. I, I got um, – I, I was on a – a scholarship offer and I'd send a letter of intent with Western. Um, so I, I felt, and, and I was, I, I always did well in school. I was our valedictorian and I had an academic scholarship waiting for me as well. So between the athletic and the academic I, college was set and what the, the Braves were offering me wasn't a really a lot better than that. Um, and just taking counsel from several people that had been in my situation, I, I was, fortunate to have calls from um, several former players and my assistant coach in college had been drafted and played in the minors for a while and I remember talking to um, Bill Freehan um, oh yeah uh, oh no it was uh, Bill Freehan was U of M's coach I talked to him about something else because they recruited me late but okay. I had already signed for Western um, uh, Bob North uh, gosh I'm gonna miss his name it was north northrop right jim northrop jim northrop okay. i went to school with <laughs> yep. bob northrop i think um jim northrop of the tigers he called me and because he had been in my situation that was really cool it was cool to talk to these former well-known detroit tigers so and, you had some uh, good mentors though yeah exactly yeah well that's pretty crazy so so, good so, advice yeah so how many years did you play at western school i ended up i i just didn't want to leave that school environment i guess and you know i was 17 when i graduated right. i was always young for my grade and i i just felt pulled to go to school um the offer wasn't that great to give up that opportunity and i always felt like i would still play after school 
um, I played three full years, I guess almost three full years. I, I hurt my back my junior year at Western, and that's really what stopped those playing days. Um, I had back problems um, most of my junior year because I hurt it during fall ball, then kind of played through it, and then uh, we went through strength and conditioning for a few months, and then it flared back up in the winter time as we started in indoor practice, and that's when we did CTs and MRIs, and they're like, "Well, you've got a couple stress fractures here in your L4, and you've got a bulging disc." And oh man, said if you keep playing at this, you know, level, um, it's probably not going to get better. Um, so I, I ended up not even playing my senior year because of it. So wow, that that's what ended my playing days and uh, got more got more into the art and the career side of things, and that was tough. I mean, that was a tough to swallow yeah well that's cool though i mean you you got to you know be basically a fraction of what student athletes you know i guess don't get to do is be a division one athlete you know and and go play a division one sport and then get to get drafted you know to a major league baseball team out of high school you were out of high school right right when you got drafted right before you yeah, went to it was, it was right out of high school. i mean that's pretty yeah. crazy i i actually grew up with a couple of brothers um and played high school baseball with them that uh the one was a year older than me and no i'm sorry two years older than me and he got drafted as a catcher to the padres in the third round first pick i think it was the first pick of the third round um that's awesome. yeah he had a full ride to kentucky and then he opted out of that and went to you know went to the padres bounced around okay. there for a little while and then his younger brother was a year behind me he was a catcher as well and got drafted to the nationals i believe out of high school but he ended up going to college for a year i believe it was a year he did um and then went and played in the minors for a little while so yeah i i remember went to a juco then or yeah well he he went to kentucky university of kentucky for i believe it was a semester and you know, the NCAA rules are if you go to a four-year college, you can't be drafted again until after your junior year. That, yeah, that's what I was yep. remembering. Unless you got a JUCO or yep. you... Yeah, so he... I, I don't know what... Yeah, he, he transferred to a, a JUCO. I want to say it was... I want to say it was GRCC, but I can't remember if that's what it was. But he, he okay. transferred to a JUCO for a year and actually played and then went back into the draft and then went that route. So, yeah, yep, that that was cool, though. I remember, you know, my sophomore year, um, I was fortunate enough to play varsity all four years as baseball in high school. And so my freshman and sophomore year, I had I don't know how many professional scouts would be at every game. I mean, I think at one time there'd be 20, 20 professional teams have, you know, representatives there watching yeah. Billy play, you know, and it was pretty – Pretty crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, if he was a third rounder, they definitely had eyes on him yeah. all the time. That's great. I think he was, and that the, was highest... the Mount Pleasant area, you say? Or? Yeah, so I I grew up um outside of Mount Pleasant and I went to a high school called Chippewa Hills High School actually, so over in Remus. Okay. Um it's over in between Mount Pleasant and Big Rapids. And gotcha. and I think I think he was Billy was drafted. I think he was the highest draft picked out of high school and mit from Michigan since Derek Jeter, because Derek Jeter was Kalamazoo oh, yeah. area. You Hard know. to beat Jeter's uh, number one pick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, it was pretty cool though. Bust them. 
but yeah that's that's way cool and you ended up where'd you end up playing college i went to a juco um muskegon my first year and then i transferred and went to fair state and i played a couple years there yep what years would that would that have been so oh boy um i graduated what year did i graduate college in 2011 or I think okay, it was ways later. Yeah, yep. I had a couple of my teammates on my American Legion team that ended up playing at Ferris. But okay. That would have been the early to mid nineties. Yep, yep. Ironically, um, out of uh, that was also what, like I said, got eyes on me is a couple of my older teammates when I was American Legion sixteen to eighteen. So when I was sixteen, um, we had a, a few outstanding seventeen and eighteen year old kids on the team that seven i counted at one time seven out of nine in our starting lineup ended up playing college somewhere wow either either in juco or a division two school or three of us played division one um so yeah it was we had a good team that's, that's crazy that legion ball no that year oh wow that legion ball there's some good competition there that's what i did in the summers too is played american legion you know that was my summer ball as yeah. well so there's some good yeah, good really talent the thing you know that was prior to any of these travel leagues you know and at least in our area that was our only option um and i was i was really fortunate because we didn't have recruitment from all over you know this this that crop of athletes from Gladstone just ended up being really good. You know, Dave Elliott was uh, my teammate that was two years older than me, and we played together at Western. He ended up playing in the minors for I don't know, I think it was three or four more, three or, three or four or more years in the minors after graduation. Um, and he had the scouts looking at him heavy uh, in high school, and that's what brought brought him, um, got him to see in me too. So. Gotcha. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, good deal. I, I wanted to get that off because I, I, I wanted to talk about baseball a little bit because I don't get to talk yeah, about baseball. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> I don't but, tend to talk about it a whole lot anymore until yeah. someone that knows baseball and has some kind of history in it. Is, <laughs> you know, it's fun to chat about that. For sure. Well, I'm sure all the listeners have probably turned this off because they want to hear about deer. So let's let's do a transition to deer. Let's just talk about some big bucks already. Yeah. Yeah. So let let's get into that. So you mentioned, you know, that you actually were born in Mount Pleasant, which is ironic because that is where I grew up. And then you moved to Cadillac and you started hunting Cadillac. So for people that don't really know the where Cadillac is in Michigan, it's basically north. So if you if you're in the middle of the lower peninsula, it's like north, you know, west a little bit of the middle yep. of the mitten. So you went there and yeah, then... Yeah, about an hour northwest of the middle, you yep, say. Yep, and then you went up to Gladstone, which you went up to the, I mean, the UP where basically it should be its own. <laughs> I mean, it should be Canada, really, because it's just a different atmosphere up there. Yeah, yeah completely different. Um, as I started... Yeah, I mean, as I started hunting, I wouldn't say it was agricultural in Cadillac area like it is in southern Michigan at all. It's very sandy soil and generally not near as good at genetics and, and hunting. Um, and, and a lot of that can be said with the UP. You know, there's some big bucks in the western UP, but where I grew up, gosh, I mean, mature bucks were lucky to break 100 inches, you know, be low 100s for score. It was just unheard of. Um best buck we ever killed up there was my grandpa's last buck he was 80 i want to say he was about 82 at the time and he made a 300 yard shot in rifle season um 
one of the few places that we crossed the road from my dad's old place. Um, my dad had him in a blind and he shot this uh, big buck, big buck for out there, um, for up there. It was, oh, I would say it was a 115 inch buck, um, maybe 120. It's about a 115, 120 buck, yeah. um, big mature buck. Though, and they just don't get the racks, you know, like they do. So, you know, I had to start hunting southern Michigan before I started killing anything <laughs> in the higher score range. But yeah, as I as I moved to the UP, um, you know, I was just going with the flow, you know, hunting how my dad told me to or how he showed me initially. And as we got to know people in the UP, it was all about bait piles and setting up your blind ahead of season and then trucking in bait every few days or how often you needed to and hunting over bait. And, you know, that was cool. Uh, we had good experiences here and there. Um, in hindsight, I know exactly why we had our success when we did, if we did, um, because they were first sits, you know, or they had the right wind. Um, it, it was things that I would identify later that made me smarter um, as I made mistakes. Um, but as I got into high school, I started breaking away from that. I'm like, gosh, I t I'm sick of not seeing things over this bait pile. You know, I know there's some deer around, you know, there's other deer and I'm seeing signs. So I started breaking away from that. And it was when I was 15, um, I actually killed four bucks that year because um, one of them was in Colorado. That was my first antlered buck I killed. And then I came back to Michigan and I got one with my bow and I got two more with my rifle and that was kind of the year I would say I just kind of broke away and started learning some things and figuring out that uh, if I don't sit over bait paws I seem to have more success <laughs> um, so th it was cool um, you know because there's there's such a tradition up there you know the the deer camps and buck poles and yep. bait piles and shanty blinds um, and, and all that's awesome and and they can have their success here and there but as i became smarter as a hunter and learned more um it, it became breaking away from those those traditions that gave me more success for sure and that's first of all i think it's very it's crazy how your grandfather got a 300 and some yard shot up in the up and <laughs> that's that's exactly a, people don't take vacations that far yeah it's rare that you can see that far unless you're on a hay field or something yeah and, and particular spot was a it was just a weedy field and it there was a hay field way way to the south um about a mile and otherwise it was nothing but cedar swamp and then this big wide open just weedy field that had some undulations in it and so my dad had a shanty blind up kind of on a little knoll in that field and you could literally see four or five hundred yards or more and there would be deer that would funnel back um if people aren't familiar, you know, I mean, and especially in Michigan, they will travel a long ways to bed w where it's safe. And that's what these deer would do. They would transition from those hay fields early before daylight, you know, and then still be in those weedy fields here and there. It was, it was a pretty yeah. cool situation. That is cool. So then... But my dad actually missed the shot on that buck first, and then he gave my grandpa the shot <laughs> because <laughs> he, was, he was first saying... If I recall the story right, my dad's like, well, shoot it, you know, shoot it, dad. And he's like, oh, I, I probably won't hit that. He's like, you just shoot it. So my dad took a shot at it and he missed. 
He's like, well, you get your, it's your turn. You get to shoot it. <laughs> so, oh my and gosh. of course they had the range. We didn't have range finders back then. So yep. he's like, um, you know, put it a foot over its back. And my dad shot high. So he said, just put it around the top of its back or just above it. And that's what he did. And he dropped it right there. Oh, that's great. awesome. That's so cool. You know, so you uh, you did the hunting up in the UP, and like you said, it, it kind of clicked one one year where it's like, you know, I got to get off this bait. I got to move around a little bit, get mobile with it. So now is where did you adopt the mobile like run and gun, hang and bang kind of thing, like just in just into the reasoning because you needed to adapt and you wanted to see more deer and get more opportunities. Um. Yes and no. Uh, no, from the standpoint, it was not a hang and bang at all. It was it was move around and sit on the ground. I did pretty much um, hunting off the ground back then. I didn't have portable tree stands okay. uh, in the mid-90s like that. Um, so I would move around, but I would build ground blinds where I would just sit on the ground. So I, I killed a few of them off the ground. Oh, most of them I killed were off the ground. My first buck that I killed... Um, from a tree stand when I was 15 was in an, it was one of those classic, like I picture in a wildlife painting, you got a big buck standing there and the old tree stand that hasn't been yep. sat in in years <laughs> is behind you. Um, and that's what, kind of what this was like. It was behind my dad's old place and there was an old stand there that we weren't baiting. We didn't have, there was nothing going on, but my dad had a, a permanent tree stand built, you know, for his bait pile across this little clearing and they'd been sitting that for, you know, well, the first few weeks. I think I killed it um, the third week of October-ish. And for those couple weeks, you know, either my brother or dad or me had sat that stand. Well, we'd always watch them come out from the other side of this clearing. and They'd usually come out from similar spots. And, and I finally just like, I'm just going to go take, take a walk over there. And shoot, I found where a couple trails were coming together. And I'm, I look up and I'm like, there's this old stand with, um, it was some small cedar trees and the poles were just lashed as a ladder up it. And I kind of started climbing. I'm like, I think I could stand in this. It didn't have a seat or anything and no safety belt. I mean, gosh, (laughs) it would stand in back then. Um, but I stood on that platform and the first time up it, I had a doe come through just that last light and this nine point, um, it was a three-year-old nine point. It was, you know, mature buck for up there. He's not mature as far as biology goes of age, but um, that's an old buck for up there, dark horn swamp buck. And I, I got him. He came by about 15 yards, and that was my first that's buck crazy. up there. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny you look at those old trees, and I did a podcast a couple weeks ago with a guy that we, you know, he, he had the definition of like a, a killing tree. You know, so every time I go through the woods and you see like those old stands, it just kind of like, it kind of makes the hair stand on my back, like gives me chills a little bit. Like, man, I wonder if that tree could talk, like there's a reason why that was there. And I'm sure there was a lot of deer killed out of that thing, you know? So that's pretty cool to be able to, you know, to go in there, but you know, to rewind a little bit, you had just talked about the reason why you started finding success is because later you were like, you know, it was our first sit in, you know, it was the first time in and you had the best success then. Like, I want to talk a little bit about that because I feel like that is something that's overlooked or you just hear people say, it's like, man, the first time in is always the best, but you know, I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about it because 
you know, there's a lot of guys out there that are like, I'm just going to hunt because I want to hunt. You know, more seat time is better for me. It's more opportunity. What would you say to that? Like, what, what is your, I guess, how do you attack that? It can be, it certainly can be if you're, if you're making it quality time. Um, but just being out there doesn't necessarily give you better odds of killing one. In fact, it can make it worse in my opinion. And that's, Having that hindsight, I think if you just have an open enough mind that you're analyzing your hunts both presently and the ones in the past, you know, what was working, what's not working, um, it, it seemed to always be those first, that first sit um, of the season when the deer are more on their natural patterns. And, and after that, you just notice things change, especially over bait piles, um, but even not over bait piles. When you're bumping deer on the way in or on the way out, you just see fewer and fewer deer. And so it, it wakes you up to not only that uh, intrusion you have in the um, around your stand, but the entrance and exit, uh, the importance of those and, and how big of a factor they play. Because that's really the reason. I mean, yeah, your scent um, when you're sitting is pooling, you know, pooling, and it's also blowing in a certain area. Um, but dang, if, I mean, if you could get airlifted into a stand and airlifted out you could sit that stand a lot more oh, yeah. that's why these e-bikes <laughs> we could go on about e-bikes too but these e-bikes are just so amazing because you 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 minimize your intrusion in and out and so it gives you more sits and if you can get more sits that are like a first sit you can really increase your odds um but that that's why those first sits are are so good because you don't have those intrusions yet and, and a lot of guys don't pay attention to entrance and exit. And so and if they're not paying attention to that and they're not paying attention to the what's going on and that their sits are getting worse and they're not moving, then they're, they're not going to have success, you know, consistently at least. Yep. And it, 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 that kind of brings up a point. I mean, you mentioned the e-bikes and Justin mentioned the e-bikes last week as well. So that might be something I need to or the listeners need to look into if you haven't. But um you mentioned, uh, or last week I was talking to Justin, I keep referring to it, but he had kind of put a light bulb moment in my head, um, about hunting just off winds. And, you know, a lot of times I even get wrapped up in it too. Like where if I'm entering a piece from the West and the wind is blowing from the East of my face, I think it's a good win for me to come in, which it is, you know, I feel like it is, but he was talking about taking a step further and maybe if you're entering from the west maybe the wind is like you know out of the southwest or you know where it's kind of going over your right shoulder what you're walking mm-hmm. in so it and that might be why you know you might not be seeing the deers because you think the wind is good for you walking in there you know i i guess i might be talking in circles um but i guess no, i get I'm, what you're saying it's yeah it's it's just that, you know, it's, it's almost a wrong wind because you need the wind to favor the deer, but also favor you. Right. That's really what it comes down to. And what woke me up to that was I was, I was sitting in a, it was literally in high school. I was watching a, I was sitting in a stand on the edge of this cedar swamp on the edge of that weedy field. I told you my grandpa got that deer from, and I watched how this deer came out. And I said, like, I have no idea which way he's going to go because it was pretty random. It wasn't like he was going to a food plot and he had brows all over. 
but I watched him start using the wind and he was just keeping it in his favor, not always walking into the wind, but you could tell that where he wanted to eventually end up, he was scent checking that. And so that was one of the clues then. I also have hunted over bait where I'll see him come in from different directions. And I'm like, well, why are they doing that? And then you put two and two together. Well, okay, they're scent checking this thing before they come into it, just like they may scent check a scrape from downwind and not even come into it. Um, but what, you know, to backtrack a little bit, because we haven't even really touched on this, but the betting is really what it comes down to is knowing where they bed and why, because typically they're going to be bedded 90% of the day, right? Daylight hours are the only time you have to hunt them. So you have to know like where they're bedded and where you think they're going to go when they get up. Um, and they're, they're typically bedding with some sort of wind advantage. That's why they bed where they bed. And I describe this in the videos I've released that it's different based on different terrain. But when you figure out that puzzle of where, where they're bedding and why, that's what allows you to figure out why, where you need to set up and why. Um, so if, you know, let's take a, a northwest ridge, for example, and this ridge has fingers shooting out east and west on it, right? And you got these points off of this northwest running ridge. So let's say you just got a west wind. What well, we describe the, the lee side of a hill um, as would be the east side, right? That's the side blocked by the wind, but right. that prevailing wind's coming over it, right? And so these points that come out to the east on that point are where that buck is going to tend to to bed. Um, it gives them an advantage. They can see down below. They got the prevailing wind coming from behind them, and they've got the thermals coming up towards them. Well, when that buck leaves its bed, let's say you've got a food plot or you've got an ag field or a food source up top where that buck is not likely to leave its bedding point and go downhill. There's other scenarios for that. But if it's on that bedding point and you have a pretty good idea that it's going to come uphill or up that ridge a little bit and work its way out to that food source up high, then, you know, the best wind for it to be doing that is some sort of westerly wind, right? The west wind might be wrong, but the northwest or the southwest wind might be the perfect wind for you and the deer. And that's where it would be easier to show you on a whiteboard or something, but that buck's going to get up out of his bed, not just walk into the wind because he's going to use the topography as well. And he's going to have to go by obstacles and blowdowns, cuts, creeks, whatever. Um, so there'll be natural stuff that you can only find using your boot leather. Um, but he may quarter that wind. He may walk in a crosswind. Um, but that's the scenario you're typically looking for is you want to be, you know, downwind of that. Um, but your wind is, is going to be borderline because if you're in there on a west wind, um, it could be blowing right to him. But you would typically be a little north or south of where he's bedded and then have that southwest or northwest wind being taking it almost but slightly away from him so that, that makes total sense though because you know typically a buck is going to bed with the wind to his back so he can smell it correct i mean is that in your yeah your instance? typically that's, that's how they'll like to bed is the, the prevailing wind at least or the um whatever that prevailing is doing 
is they'll have their back to that so they can smell behind them and see in front of yep. them. Yeah, and then so if he's out on those points, which I totally get, if the wind is coming, you know, he's on the points to the east and the wind's coming out of some sort of west, he's going to stand up and he's going to turn and he's going to walk some, he's going to try to have that wind cut in his nose somehow. Um, so he's going to be walking right. to the west somehow. But I guess that makes total sense. I think you painted an audio picture as well as you probably could have. It had me thinking too on one of my spots and and how I might need to switch up some things and um, you know what winds you think could be like if you're coming in from the west, but the wind is out of the west. You're thinking like that's the that's the worst wind possible because I never hunt it for that. But exactly, if you and know that's a mistake, I see a lot of guys make right. Right. They're just like, okay, well, the the food plot is, is let's say, on the, well, I'll just keep with that same scenario. Let's say you've got a food source, a food plot, or an ag field, or something up high to the west of where this deer is bedding. And so most hunters are like, well, I'm waiting for my east wind um, so I can get in there and, and kill this deer. Like The deer's not going to be in there when there's an east wind. He's going to be bedded over on the west side of that ridge on a different point and if you know where that is at then it'll be easy yeah you know? but that, yep. that's where guys don't you know if they don't understand that concept then they're just going to be waiting waiting their time for an ideal win for them but not for the deer right and i i almost feel like i've fallen victim to that as well not hunting spots because i'm not saying your entry and exit like just throw caution to the or like just throw caution to the wind like don't go in to a spot with the wind at your back but if you know if you're if you're confident that de- that deer is not where you're going he's gonna end up being there you know what i mean like you know maybe it might be the right move you know would you agree with that yeah exactly exactly because if that's why it's so important to know where it's betting because you can get away with a lot more when you know where it's betting versus if you have no idea then you, you could be spooking it and you don't know but when you know where it's betting or have a pretty good idea, it's just a matter of if he's betting there that day or not. For sure. Then you can plan your entrance or exit accordingly. So you either come in from the north or from the northwest or the south or southwest or something that, okay, well, if he's in there, then he can't see me. And, yeah, I'm banking on him moving and coming by this way. But, you know, entry and exit is everything. You, you do not want to tip them off. A mature buck is not going to let you – get away with that i mean if they sense that you know there was a noise made in that direction or they smelled something funny they will not go that way right you know plain and simple you just you'll you'll see it time and time again um and i I think a lot of guys um make that mistake of um you know their their trail camera shows them oh he's moving in daylight or he's done this thing now all i've got to do is go make my move but if you screw up and don't uh, consider your entrance or you're alerting him on your entrance. He's just not going to move that night. Yeah. I've heard so many stories of, of guys that, Oh, that buck is just, man, I, I sit on this side. He comes out on that side. I sit on that side. He comes out on this side. Well, why is that? He's probably seeing you go to your stand. Um, he's probably seeing you or smelling you or hearing you. Something is tipping him off that where you're at, you know, cause you flip a coin 10 times, you're not going to always be generally not going to always be wrong. You're going to hit it right at some point. Right. 
But if you're always wrong and he's always coming out on the wrong side or something, man, think about it. You might be <laughs> tipping him off. Well, and that goes back to something I've said. I've said this for a long time is like every time hunters go into the woods, it's, it's always an away game. You know, it's, you're never home field advantage. I feel like, you know, those deer live there every day of their life yeah. and they're surviving, especially in Michigan. I mean, I feel like deer walking on eggshells and they're at the edge of their existence every so day of the here. every day of the year, you know, but yeah, it's so different in Michigan. There's so much more on edge. I, I couldn't believe when I started hunting other States, you know, how much more you can get away with Oh man, from, from younger deer, you know, the older yeah. deer are still pretty darn smart, you know, but older deer here is more of that three-year-old plus and, you know, they get four, five, six out of state. Yeah, they're starting to get pretty smart too. But for sure, different different animals. So I think I'm going to stay on this wind thing. I want to ask you a few more questions on the wind. And sure. so, have you have you ever had any instance where you, you know, let's say you're going into a stand, whatever it is, and you can paint a picture as well if you have this scenario, but you know the wind is dead wrong for you walking in there, but you know that that buck by the time he comes by your stand, he'll probably be right at your wind line, but he should have an arrow through him. Have you had that instance a lot? Yeah, that's pretty common. Um, I don't necessarily, I'd have to think here for specific setups that I can remember. Um, but it goes back to knowing where they bed and knowing that, okay, well, this may be wrong here, um, especially when you're doing hanging hunts or you're, you're hunting mobile and maybe you're scouting on the fly for a new spot that you haven't been in. You're just looking for that best sign, trying not to go too far, and you're set up. Set up. Um, part of that component is you just you always have to have that mental uh, notebook in your head of where you've walked, right? It's well. I've, I've already tainted this, you know, I don't care if you're wearing rubber boots or not, they will smell you. The mature bucks will smell, um, a fresh trail like that. You know, if it's only been a few hours or less, they'll smell that. And so you really have to keep track of where you've walked to the point where I will literally like walk through the middle of my shooting lane. Sometimes if, if it's, let's say it's a wide open, I mean, wide open, maybe it's 10 yards wide, right? and you've got a shooting lane that is 10 yards wide and your only option is maybe to walk through the middle of that shooting lane straight to your tree so that you've got a, you've got a chance to shoot that deer on either side of your trail before he hits your scent trail. Um, so that, that's a scenario that I've done. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, I know I'm walking, I'm sending up this particular area because the wind is good for me. He's not going to smell my wind but he will cut my trail here, but I don't care because I'll have had the chance to shoot him already. And, th- and that's what you keep in mind. I would rather that than, than have him get downwind of me before he's reached my, uh, reached a shooting lane or something. Yep. That, that makes total sense. Now, do you, do you feel like, I'm going to transition a little bit, but do you feel like when you're hunting Michigan that you have to be a little more on your game than you are, when you're hunting out of state somewhere? Sort of. Um, but from the standpoint of my target animal, um, I try to be on my game no matter what, because I just adjust my standards. Um, you know, in, in Michigan, 
in most of the time in Michigan with the spots I either have permission on or, or can have access to, um, a three-year-old buck, you know, like 125 plus as a shooter for me around here, they're just not that common that I, that I would be passing them up. Um, number one, because I'm spending most of my time hunting with my son anyways, and I don't have much time. Number two, there aren't many of them. You can hunt a whole season. And if you get a, a, a crack or two at one of them, you're doing well. Um, and those are the smart ones, the three-year-old pluses, you know, but out of state, I'm really not interested in anything that's not, you know, four-year-old plus, And I have to be on my game for those as well. I don't take anything for granted. For sure. It, it could be an unhunted farm in Iowa and I'm still going to take every precaution. So yeah. I, I just try to, you know, leave a stone unturned. Yeah, and it, I kind of made it sound like, is it something you shut off or turn on? You know, but that's not not really what I was meaning by that. But you answered it perfect because, you know, I, I had that scenario last year in Iowa. It was a farm that was relatively not hunted for a long time, low pressure. And I found myself doing the same things that I did, you know, I do in Michigan. And I almost think coming from a state like Michigan or PA or a, a New York or, you know, even a Wisconsin a little bit, like growing up in the around in and around deer that, you know, like I said, they live on the edge of their existence every day of the year, basically. It almost makes you, it almost makes you more on point, I would say, because I found myself in Iowa doing things like, I don't know, checking, checking twice, you know, on different things like, Hey, you know, you know, like you said, you go out of state, those bigger, more mature deer, they will get spooky, but like you can get away with some things out there. You will never get away with over here. So, yeah. And I do agree there, there are times when I might hunt a stand again and I might not, I wouldn't do it in Michigan. Um, I'd have to think hard for a specific example, but I, I know there's cases where, if you spook a deer in Iowa, um, you still, he's probably not leaving the country. He's probably still going to move in daylight the next day. You, you have more chances, yes. you know, than in Michigan. Yep. I know better than to even come back and hunt that spot again. You know, it's that, that gig is up. I missed my chance. <laughs> it's over. You know? Right. Yep. But in Iowa, that's not, you know, somewhere else that's not the case maybe. Yeah. And that, that was, that goes same thing with Iowa. I mean, I hunted one stand for four days in a row, morning and night, every day, that stand. And every sit I was having, every set with except one, I had a shooter buck, you know, when I say shooter, 140 inch, you know, four year old or bigger come by me yeah. that, you know, that I could have had an opportunity at. And then once, you know, once I did decide to move, we, we moved and that next day, I shot a deer of a lifetime, but, um, you know, that awesome. we were af- that we were after, but that, that just goes to show you too, like when we went and hung that stand, when we moved the stand, we hunted, um, that morning that I killed that deer and that deer came out to 80 yards while well, he took a doe up to our left, it would be to our North. And that's how we come in um, from the stand. So he took her up there. We, we lost sight of him. We waited there for a little bit longer and we had to get out. It was so cold and, uh, you know, it was, we were filming it. So the guy that was filming me was the batteries were dying like crazy cause it was so cold. So when we yeah. left there, we were going to leave for like an hour and get back in. 
we had to go buy this deer to to get out. So what we did is we went, I mean, we we took a 20-minute saunter out of, you know, just away from this deer way. I mean, basically we had to go north. We went south 20 minutes to go north, if that makes sense. Yeah. Cuz we had no, to sure. we had to just just so we were on our game, we had to think that that deer was there. Um and honestly, we got back in the stand, did the same thing coming back into the stand. And when we got in there, it was 3.30. He come from where we would have had to walk by him, and we shot him at 17 yards. So, I mean, it was it was crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, that's awesome. But just those little scenarios, like just crossing your T's and dotting your I's and making sure you're on your game, no matter where you're at, really. Yeah, definitely. And you can use that to your advantage sometimes, too. You know, if, if you uh, I mentioned about the scenario where a guy sits on one side of the field and it comes out on the other, and then you switch and it comes out on the other, you know, if use that to your advantage sometime. If you have a good idea where something's bedded and you want him to see you do something to maybe eliminate the chance of him coming out over on that side, then go walk over there, make some noise, make it less likely that he's going to come over there and then slip out of there and sneak in quietly to the spot where you think he's going to go to instead. For sure. And that's kind of one of those out-of-the-box thinking. I mean, you might think about that, but it's like, why the hell would I do that? Because I feel like I'd be blowing that deer out of the country. When realistically, that deer's probably not going to go far. And he's going to go to the the first piece of safety, security cover he has. And then that even helps you out, out, I think, if you have access to that security cover to move in a little bit more, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we I call that stacking in the one of the my first videos we released, um, where you're, you know, you're. It's kind of a process of elimination where you're hunting stands that should be good. You're hunting them in the right conditions, but as we all know, most of the time we don't score. It doesn't work out, and you're assuming that that bridge is burned, at least for a while, because that was your first sit, didn't get it done and you're assuming he was in there and he heard you or didn't move that night or whatever. Um, but you're trying the next bedding area and the next bedding area, if you have that many options of, of access. Um, but yeah, you, you're kind of stacking the deck in your favor by, you know, using up this one, this one, this one, your, your odds are going up that you're going to eventually get it right. For sure. Now, as we talk about this, um, you mentioned that uh, more of like being mobile and 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 kind of moving around a little bit. Are you strictly a mobile hunter? Do you do a lot of hang and bangs, or are you kind of a set stand guy? Yeah, I'm. I'm both. I guess I wouldn't describe myself as as just one way um, because I just really want the situation to to determine what I should be doing best. Um, man, I like a pre-hung stand as much as the next guy. Um, so like on the farms, I have permission to hunt where I have an ability to pre-scout them or, you know, uh, multiple years or something, which is rare, but if I can scout them in the spring and have a good idea on where a stand's going to go, I'll hang a stand. And if I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, it's pretty likely I'll be back to this stand and I'll leave one up and then use my another mobile setup. And that's why we all want a bunch of tree stands in our garage. <laughs> right. so you can grab another one, leave one set. Um, I am, I guess my mindset, I would tell you, is just it's 
never made up. Um, I usually have a pretty good idea what I'm going to do, but I let the situation determine what I'm going to do. So I may go into a spot with the intention of leaving the stand or with the intention of taking it down and moving it. But if I see something, you know, that tells me otherwise, I'll, then I'll, I'll do the opposite. Um, yeah, in general on public land, I'm, um, I'm just going to set it up and take it down each time Mm -hmm. on private land. Um, especially the smaller, the parcel, I tend to, um, I tend to have, you know, those, those sweet spots, those kill stands. I was like, okay, you know, if, if the conditions are right, I don't overhunt this. These are the trees to kill them from. You might as well have a stand hanging, have it waiting and not have to mess with it or make that noise or take those risks. Um, but, you know, as we all know, you can run out of stands in a hurry. <laughs> you know, just having, let's <laughs> yeah. say, three properties to hunt. If you have just three properties to hunt and they're each 20 acres, you know, you could eat, you could have three stands on each of them and still be wanting a mobile setup because, yeah, it's not, you know, I, I hunted there before. I just want to move it over. I'm going to leave that one because the wind may still do something different. Um, because we're splitting hairs a lot of times with the way the wind is on a given night. You know, we may move that stand 20 yards over. Um, I've seen that. I've seen that before often where, yeah, the, the buck or the deer are still doing the similar things, but they're, they've just been nudged enough or something. They're, they're, they're moving over. They're coming out on a different trail now. And that's the stuff you got to just really be observant on. Um, they're not as random as you think, um, those deer, they don't do the same thing all the time, but they're, they are recognizable to, to notice things, you know, like, oh, okay. And you got to be able to jump on them when, when, when you see something. Yeah. And that seems like it's the kind of the general consensus when you talk to guys and talking about mobile hunting versus you know, set stand hunting or what it might be is just the ability to adapt to the situation. And, um, I think that's what makes, you know, some of the, the better buck hunters, I guess you could say the guys that get it done year after year is they're just, they, they adapt better and maybe they retain things a little better on the fly. Um, and, there's a guy, Kurt Geyer, he runs the working class bull hunter. He was talking about how he, he's like a lot like kind of you are, he, he does set stands, but he's like, I've always got my, you know, mobile setup in my truck if I have to get mobile, you know? So it's like yeah. just one of those tools in the, in the toolbox to like, you know, if I know I have to get mobile tonight, I got this and I can go. And I think I like that approach, you know, cause I love, I love having set stands because like you said, the smaller the ground, the more you want the, the set stands. And I agree because I hunt some really small acres of timber, like less than five acres and I don't want to be going in there, you know, I can get into one stand if there's deer in there and not bump them, but I don't want to be hanging and, you know, having a, hanging a stand and banging things around possibly. Yeah. I just want to be able to climb up it and sit and, and be ready. Well, especially when you're hunting with kids, you know, and that's been the name of the game for me for the last several years now is I'm almost always with my son when I'm hunting in Michigan and hanging two stands. That gets old in a hurry when you're, setting up you know twice the work for everything um so you, you you plan things out a little more um but the whole the whole idea of 
behind my thought process is I don't ever be, I don't ever want to be in a stand that is so difficult to move that if I see something happen while I'm in that stand, I'm just like, Oh, I wish I could be over there. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, that, that was kind of, I made up my mind about that a long time ago is, you know, I don't ever want to be that guy that feels stuck in this tree that I can't just like, Oh my gosh, I, you know, this has happened twice now. All I got to do is break this stand down, move over and in a, 20 minutes or something, I'd be over there in that spot. And the next one that comes through there is mine. Um, so it may be a pre-hung stand, but it's still a mobile system that I know I can take down and I can move it if I need to. I got you. That makes total sense. Yeah. And like I said, just you're, you're adapting to your situation, whatever you need to do, you're, you're making it happen. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, very cool, man. Um, I we're coming up on an hour here. I don't. Do you have any other stuff that you kind of wanted to touch on, or um, I, I did want to talk about some. Yeah. What's that? It goes by fast. <laughs> it goes by real fast when <laughs> you're having fun. Here all day. Yeah, definitely. Um, I did want to talk about one last thing, and it's a hunt you had a, a little while ago in uh, Wisconsin over a water hole, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll uh, talk about this and wrap it up, but. You know, I saw this on the Whitetail Addictions that you guys did. Um, You, and I'll let you tell the story, but kind of cliff notes, you you went to Wisconsin early season, I believe it was, and and killed a a good buck over basically a water puddle, which was unbelievable. It was pretty cool. So, I mean, break that scenario down for us because right now, I mean, we're in a drought here, you know, in our area and and water's key. So that's that's kind of a running theme right now. So I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was something that I certainly in this day and age, I think everyone's uh, understands and knows about that the popularity of hunting over water. Um, and it certainly wasn't the case when I was growing up. I mean, it was more about bay, bay piles and food plots or food sources. Um, but those deer need water every day, especially in hot weather. Um, and early season, uh, whether it's Wisconsin or Michigan or anywhere, um, when the deer's been bedded in the heat all day, one of the first things they'll want to do is, is get some water. And whenever you're in a scenario that has limited water, I mean, perfect example is antelope hunting out west. I mean, that's why water is so so special out there because, you know, you can literally throw a pop-up blind next to these big windmills and water tanks and the antelope come into them, you know, because they have to water. They have to get water in that heat. And that's kind of what it was. I mean, that particular weekend, gosh, it's been a long time ago, but um, there was Ernebuck in Wisconsin that year for those few years. And so I went over to Wisconsin that opening weekend, not even being able to shoot a buck first day. Um, I hunted, when was it? It was the first morning or the evening? It was the evening. We hunted in the morning. Typically, I don't hunt mornings. Um but we needed to shoot a doe in order to get a buck tag. So I'm like, man, if we can just see a doe in the morning somewhere, then uh, we can hunt for a buck that first opening evening. Well, it didn't happen. Um, we didn't see a deer that first morning, as is typical. Um, but that first evening, I shot a doe and got my got my buck tag earned. So the second day on that Sunday, um, I I knew uh, my buddy that we were um, sharing the farm, you know, with hunting, my buddy that I was hunting it with, um, 
he had told me about this puddle. We had walked it in, I think, July or something. And I needed to go in and verify um, if it was still wet. You know, if we, I wanted to see what, what the sign looked like. So middle, you know, right around noon or early afternoon that day, I went in and checked that puddle. And early season, it's not like, you know, in the springtime when um, I would describe it as the lake being drained, you know, when you can see the signs so easily in the spring, it wasn't super obvious, but there were some fresh tracks on this puddle. The ground was pretty hard and gravelly. That's why it was holding water in this little seep. Um, but there was a faint trail coming from a couple different directions. And you're just looking at these nettles and, and some of the different foliage that was freshly bent over. You could tell there was some activity in there. And I, I knew there was a, a a buck bedding point further down to the E south, south in this case. Yeah, it was south. Um, it was a south facing point. And, um, yeah, so I hung a, I hung a stand right there and, and my buddy Sean was with me and he, he was a um, cameraman that night. He sat in a separate tree. So we were about 15 feet away and couldn't really talk to each other. Um, but yeah, right just before dark, uh, it was the only deer I saw that night. Uh, we had a raccoon come in earlier, but um, this buck came came up that ridge just like clockwork. I mean, and that's if it happens early season, usually it's going to happen like clockwork. If you have it scouted and have an idea of where they're betting, what the wind is doing, all right, this is probably what they're going to do. It's not like the rut where they're they might be coming from a completely different direction because of what, whatever happened earlier. But yeah, this, this buck just was feeding its way into a quartering wind where he would have hit my wind. If you watch that video, if he'd have went another, Oh, another five or 10 feet, he would have been downwind of me. So that wind was um, not going right at that puddle, but it was going at about a, 30 degree angle towards it, you know, away, well, away from about 30 degrees, 40 degrees away from that puddle. And to the point where, okay, I should be able to shoot him before, uh, before he crosses my wind. And that's, that's your strategy behind it. And sometimes you get lucky and they go, you know, your scent will go over them or they, you know, they don't always, don't always wind you. But the idea is, you know, the, the mindset is that you get to kill them before they, they catch your wind. That's good. That's really cool because I mean, that that's basically the exact scenario you, that you were describing. We were describing throughout this podcast, right? I mean, you said, you know, the, you figured that buck was a buck was betting to the South, the South point. Right. And he probably got out of his bed. And the first thing he was doing was going to this water before he went out to feed. Is that kind of the scenario you were, exactly. you were thinking? Yeah, exactly. You know, that, that was the bonus and that's, what's made, uh, waterhole hunting so popular up there so popular to the point that the neighbor frankly ruined it for the years to come because <laughs> the success we had on that farm that year I, I think the neighbor just freaked out he was leasing 40 acres that was landlocked around that uh, that lease that we had and then by the next year he had four water holes on that 40 acres oh wow and i mean he, he was a clown he didn't know what he was doing he, had, <laughs> he was He'd leave a half an hour before dark and oh, you know, man. half an hour after daylight. He messed up a lot of things in those subsequent years that, that really hurt things. Um, but that that's just the mentality some people have is like, oh, well, you know, if, 
he had success hunting over a water hole, then, then, then let's put 10 water holes in it and hunt them all the time, you know, and that's just not how you, how you have success. Right. You, know, yeah. you, you really have to limit um, how often you hunt that water because it's so isolated, uh, because it's a limited you know, resource. It's, you can't just sit over it all the time. Right. And sure, during the rut, something may break free. A neighbor deer can, can come along and you know, they'll have just enough success to keep doing it. But um, yeah, on the farms, like we've hunted, uh, I've hunted in Wisconsin the past few years with my good friend Lee. Um, there's water holes on the farm, but we very seldom hunt them. Very seldom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And the deer though we've killed so far have not been over water holes. But um, don't make the mistake of thinking we wouldn't. I mean, if if the stars line up and you notice something and you see something, um, we'd be the first one to to move in on it. But it's just not something you do. You know. Yeah. eight or ten times a year right right yep for sure well that's cool man jared i appreciate you coming on and doing this definitely um no problem yeah. you you in the throughout the podcast you were mentioning some dvds that you were doing what can you mention those dvds and where people might want to look at them or see that content yeah so it's it's kind of uh it's been a side project of mine for a long time and i haven't done much with it in in a while um but I originally released those DVDs under the company Blood Brothers Outdoors. I was partnered up with a couple other guys. My good friend Lee and I are still partners. We rebranded to Next Buck Outdoors um, back in about 2010, I want to say. And we've got three videos out. It's hunting marsh bucks, hill country bucks, and farm country bucks. Um, You can check them out at nextbuckoutdoors.com. And yeah, they're about like 15 bucks a piece. Um, they're two and a half, three hours long each. And we go into detail of why they bed, where they bed in this type of terrain. Here are several hunts and examples of, you know, what we did, why we set our stand here, where we think they were bedding, what they were doing, um, you know, just how the deer move and bed in those types of terrains. And it's really applicable stuff. I mean, because back when um, I met guys like Andre and Lee um, in the early 2000s there was getting to be a lot of hunting videos out there and a lot of uh, more and more outdoor television but they just weren't instructional you know you couldn't learn from them really they were mostly outfitted hunts anyway um, but I really saw a need for having educational material out there and going into detail from guys that have killed big bucks, you know, and, and we've profiled Andre in these videos and, and Lee in my, in my Hill Country video, um, you know, how guys can consistently get onto them in different types of terrain. So that, that was the focus. But then in the you know, mid-2000s, like 2008, 10, when I got self-employed and I started having kids, I just didn't have time to for that to be a side project anymore and keep editing and releasing new DVDs. They're such an investment of time. Right, yep. I wanted any spare time I have to still be hunting, but all that extra time spent editing and filming, you know, B-roll and production parts of it were not available to me anymore. So I still sell those three three videos. You can still get them through, um, uh, uh, what's our, Stony Wolf is our distributor. Okay. And they sell them through Cabela's and uh, several other big retailers. Um, 
and maybe someday we'll look at putting something else out there through YouTube or, or whatever. But yeah, my, my time's pretty full between being self-employed and, and taking my kids hunting. And it's, uh, but yeah, I appreciate you asking me about that. No problem, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on again and I want to be conscious of your time. And I know, uh, it's a Friday right now, so I know it's midday and we got things to do. So I appreciate it again, Jared. And, yeah. uh, and hopefully you have a good season this year and good luck. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was good, good chatting with you, Aaron.